believe. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Amen.
God, you are always good. Where do I begin? There's so many reasons to love you. Your promise never breaks. Your beauty never fades. What else can I say? There's so many reasons to love you. Faithful to the end. God, you serve as the Director of Communications here at Redemption. I've got a couple of announcements for you, so listen up. The market is still open and there's a great need for donations. This ministry provides grocery items to individuals and families who need some practical help. We also have volunteers who talk to and care for market guests, praying with them and showing the love of Christ. Each grocery donation makes a big difference to support this ministry. 
Donations can be dropped off at the office Monday to Friday between 8 and 4 p.m., as well as when you come to services. Check out the Facebook page, The Market, for the most up-to-date needs. Next, Safe Families is a gospel-oriented ministry that seeks to provide practical care and support for struggling families. This could be by coming alongside a single parent to offer support, providing a home for children on a temporary basis, or supporting others who are providing care. The London chapter is run by Greg Stig, who with his family is a part of our congregation. There's a variety of ways you can support this ministry, whether it be financially or by volunteering in a wide range of areas. There might be a way that you can help a family in a crisis situation with little hope. To learn more or to get involved, email london at safefamilies.ca. Guys, unfortunately, the decision has been made to cancel Free Indeed for 2021. All men registered for the event will receive a full refund for the ticket. However, Hope Oakville has decided not to leave the men empty-handed, and you will be receiving pre-recorded videos via email. You'll be able to take in amazing teaching at your own pace and review them later on. We pray that the videos will inspire, equip, and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. And we look forward to 2022 when we can gather again for this amazing conference. Guys, that's all I have for you today. Enjoy the service, and God bless.
fighting was least to come. God of glory, you're so worthy. All the saints bow down. Holy, holy, God Almighty, who was in this to come. God of glory, you're so worthy. All the saints bow down. Holy is your name in all the earth. Righteous are your ways, so merciful. Everything you've done is just and true.
this heart open wide from the depths, from the heights, I will bring sacrifice with these hands lifted high. Hear my song, hear my cry. I will bring a sacrifice. I will bring a
thought it would be appropriate, based on the events of this past week, to take a bit of an extended time in prayer this morning. I want to begin my prayer with a prayer from the Puritan Book of Prayers called the Valley of Vision. I have paraphrased this into more modern language and edited some. Would you bow your hearts and heads with me now? Let's talk to God. Our Father, the God of mercies, I ask that you hear this prayer, not for my sake, but for Jesus' sake. We are sinful, even on our best days. If not for thy mercy, we would be undone. Your grace given to us who believe through the cross of Christ has reconciled us to you, making us who were enemies now sons and daughters. As your children, we, we thank you for drawing us to yourself by your love. And we now enjoy this access to you, the one who is sovereign and ruler over all. Father, you are the great giver of all grace. So we look to you in this season. Trials and troubles surround us. Loss and isolation engulf us. But in this we turn to you, the giver of strength. The Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us from temptations? Our hearts are near exhaustion, and our sin is ever around us. We have no strength but thee and thee alone. Be our portion and our provision. Manifest your power and presence within us. Without your constant grace, we would fall so quickly, for we struggle to put into practice what our hearts and minds believe. Father, hold us back from evil. Stop Satan's fiery darts from piercing us. Strengthen our shield of faith. Grant us wisdom to see and to flee from Satan's deception, from his lies, from his twisting of your word, and from his accusations against you and against us. Lord, would each trial we face, each day and hour of each trial, simply draw us closer to you. Would you make us more dependent on you with each temptation? May we rest more in your peace and love. Lord, unless you work in us, transforming and changing us, we are hopeless and helpless. We place all our trust and faith in your promised help that you would enable us to walk humbly and dependably Dependently upon you for the sake and glory of Jesus. Father, with these increased lockdowns, multiple losses of our freedom, with deeper isolation from those we love, and amplified reasons to be anxious or fearful, in the midst of this storm, as the waves crash about us and on us and often filling our boat, would you kindly help us, would you enable us Jesus, would you lift us up as you lifted Peter as he sank? Fix our eyes firmly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Cause us to see and trust in him alone. Would you enable us to count it all joy as we encounter trials of various kinds, helping us to know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And as we let steadfastness have its full effect in us, we thank you that right now in the midst of another trial, you are making us mature and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Father, your word tells us that it is your will that we give thanks in all circumstances. So by faith, we choose right now, each of us here in this room or at homes, in our homes watching, each of us chooses to give thanks for this recent stay-at-home enhanced lockdown. We give thanks for the loss of freedoms. We give thanks for the changes you have brought in our lives and families again this week. We give thanks, Father, for even for the virus. We are to give thanks in all circumstances. Would you forgive us for our grumbling? Forgive us for our murmuring? Forgive us for our complaining? Forgive us for our criticizing? Forgive us for speaking ill of our civil leaders and those making decisions? We want to be in your perfect will in our lives. And so we choose now, even when all of this may seem so wrong, we choose by faith to offer our praise and our gratitude for this season, for these restrictions, and even for this virus. Father, as I was reminded this week by one of our staff, it says in the Old Testament, it is the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. It is our compromising on what we call little sins, our explaining away, our downplaying, our justifying in our hearts and our attitudes with our words. We think it's okay to think and say and do what we do. Reflecting on your call to live lives that are holy, for you are holy. Lord, help us as you call us to obedience, including in our hearts, in our attitudes, and with our words. We confess in this trial it's easy to sin in these areas and then defend and excuse our sin. Father, would you shine the light of your word by your spirit into every room in our hearts, rooting out all that does not honor you, all that does not give thanks to you in all circumstances, and all that does not bring glory to your Son. As we gather in worship, gathering in a way that none of us want, we are still your family, brothers and sisters. We're united by technology in this season. Together we join our hearts and our minds in worship and in prayer and under your word. Father, as we do this now, forgive our sin. We ask this only because Jesus has paid it all. He has made a way. His payment is our provision. His righteousness is our holiness. And so for, we ask for your forgiveness and cleansing. We ask that you would lift our countenance this day. You would strengthen our hands for the task you would heal any and all who are sick. We pray that our reality would be that of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus is always and only through you, by you, in you and for you. It is with this faith, this trust, and this hope that we end our prayer, fixing our eyes upon you and you alone. We love you, Father. We love you, Son. We love you, Spirit. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Amen.
every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance. I believe that you are my fortress, you are my portion, you are my hiding place. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe through every blessing, through every
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Well, good morning to the few who are here. It's going to be a little awkward because I'm going to make a lot of eye contact with you this morning. I hope that won't be too unsettling. And good morning to everyone who is at home. I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We are going to parachute, so to speak, into the middle of this chapter, the middle of this sermon delivered by the Lord Jesus. And read together verses 34 through 39. So please follow along in your Bibles here and at home. And pay close attention to the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, maybe six years ago, I took up mountain biking. And uh, when we lived back in Texas, it was wonderful because you can ride a bike all year round, right? Up here, not so much. And so I put the bike away back in uh, October. And we had a couple of beautiful days. Was it last week or just the week before? And so I dusted off that bike and uh, gave it a little tune-up. And out I went for a ride. It had been six months. And close to our home, there's a conservation area, Pushlink Lake, and there are mountain bike trails throughout that conservation area. And it's beautiful. It's a 10-minute ride. So I did the 10-minute ride on the roads to Pushlink Lake. And I had maybe been on the trails for, for 10 minutes, and uh, I was just sailing along, buzzing along. Wonderful ride, beautiful day. And then I suddenly hit a wall. Uh, the six-month break uh, kicked in. And all of a sudden, I felt exhausted. Every muscle in my body was aching. And I started to gasp for air. And I literally thought I was going to cough up a lung. Uh, the six months, no exercise caught up with me. And I basically crawled home on that bike after about a 20-minute, 25-minute ride. Uh, exhaustion, complete physical exhaustion overwhelming. And I want to confess to you this morning that for maybe five or six months, um, I have been spiritually exhausted. I uh, hit a wall months ago, and I have felt exhausted ever since. 
And I'm going to hazard a guess that in this very small, intimate gathering right here, there is at least one uh, who is empathizing. This is resonating with you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And perhaps there is more than just one, and I'm going to hazard a guess there are quite a few at home. Watching right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've hit a wall. It might have been six months ago. It might have been three months ago. It might have been with the new protocols shut down, the additional restrictions two days ago. But you just feel like you've arrived at the end of yourself. Uh, this past week, you know, with that in mind, this past week I've been meditating on Paul's doxology right at the end of Romans 16. It's a beautiful text. It begins in verse 25. And he says, Now to him who is able, that in and of itself is a tremendous statement. As he lifts his eyes heavenward and he addresses his God and describes him as he who is able. Now to he who is able, right? May he, and able to what? Strengthen you. And strengthen you how? Paul says, according to my gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus. That word strengthen, that's a fascinating word study because it's used on only a couple of occasions in the New Testament. We find it, oddly enough, in that incident, it's recorded in Luke's gospel account, isn't it? That poor man named Lazarus, and he lives at the gate of that rich man, and the rich man wants nothing to do with him, and Lazarus kind of lives off the crumbs, whatever scraps he can obtain, and the day comes when Lazarus dies, the rich man dies, and we were given this glimpse by the Lord Jesus into the state of their souls. And Lazarus, he's with Abraham in paradise. And that rich man who lived that selfish, self-centered life, there he is in torment. And he sees Lazarus with Abraham and he calls out to Abraham. And he asks for permission. He asks that Abraham would send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water so that he could quench this rich man's, this sinner's thirst as he languishes there in torment. And Abraham responds to that request as follows, saying, it is impossible because there is a great chasm fixed between you and me. It's that word in Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to him who is able to fix you. It conveys the idea of immovability, of stability, of staying power. We find the word again used in reference to the Lord Jesus a couple of times in the gospel narratives where we read that as Calvary's cross is approaching, as it is looming there on the horizon, that the Lord Jesus sets his face it's the same word, fixes his face, sets his face toward Jerusalem. It's that word in Romans 16, now to him who is able to strengthen you, this idea of determination, this idea of setting our gaze upon something, it is set, it is fixed, again that word, immovable. 
And that is what Paul is declaring in that doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. And if I need anything these days, it is precisely that. Oh, I'm in need of strength. Some immovability. And Paul, in that doxology, he tells us how God who is able strengthens us. He says, according to my gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus. So that's what I'm going to do for myself this morning. I'm going to preach to myself. And we're going to do, I'm going to do so on the basis of Matthew 10, 34 through 39. And my prayer is that the Lord uses this to strengthen me. My prayer is that the Lord uses it to strengthen you. And you at home, my prayer, simple, is that the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the Lord Jesus, just to make the ground beneath our feet a little more stable and make us a little more fixed, a little more determined, so that there is perseverance, there is endurance, especially as many of us are feeling downright exhausted these days. And so here we are then in Matthew chapter 10. If you heard me last week, you know that this is a sermon, the chapter in its entirety. You will also recall that there are three major sections in this sermon. In the first section, beginning in verse 1, going as far as verse 15, we have Christ's first commission to his disciples. And then beginning in verse 16, going as far as verse 25, we have his second commission to his disciples. That first commission is fulfilled prior to the ascension, during Christ's earthly ministry. That second commission is fulfilled after his ascension. And in both of these commissions, the Lord Jesus makes it clear to his band of followers, his little apostolic group, those disciples, look, you're going to go out and you're going to preach the gospel of the kingdom. You're going to declare, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the response is going to be very mixed. And some will receive you and welcome you, and some will not appreciate you at all. And their response can only be described as spiteful, as hateful. And so it brings the Lord Jesus to the third major section in his sermon, whereby he encourages and equips his disciples to face that opposition which will undoubtedly come. That begins in verse 26, goes right through to the end of the sermon, verse 42, and the Lord Jesus, by way of this equipping, encouraging of his disciples makes three key points. Number one, fear God above all else, verse 26 to 33. Number two, love God above all else, verse 34 to 39. And number three, serve God above all else, verse 40 through 42. So last Lord's Day, we covered the first point. Again, that's verses 26 through to verse 33. Fear God above all else. Three times the Lord Jesus issues that can't command, do not fear. We have the first right at the outset of verse 26, have no fear of them. Why? God's word, God's will is indestructible. And then look at verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Why? Because God's wrath is incomparable. And then the third instance of the command, right there, the outset of verse 31, fear not. Why? Because God's love is 
immeasurable. So fear God above all else. And now we focus on his second point, verses 34 through 39, our text, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the Lord Jesus, love God above all else. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to make six points. I simply want us to be clear on what it means to love God, what it means to love the Lord Jesus above all else. And I think if I can just emphasize, stress these six key points, six key truths, we'll have the gist of this text, what it means for us. And by focusing on this text, studying this text, hearing this text, again, our prayer, our goal, our desire is that we might be strengthened according to the gospel and according to the preaching of the Lord Jesus. So here's point number one, loving God above all else. What does this mean? Number one, loving Christ, the first thing we must understand, loving Christ is the fruit of trusting in Christ. That is the place to begin. That is the necessary place to begin. Loving Christ is the fruit of trusting in Him. We have a beautiful story in Luke chapter 7. Tremendous story, moving as we enter into its details. And there the Lord Jesus is invited by a man named Simon. He's a Pharisee, pretty important religious leader. And Simon invites him into his home to partake of a meal. And in those days, when you gathered in a home, you would uh, recline sort of on these couches around the circle. The food would be in the middle. You would sort of recline on your left arm and feed yourself with your right hand. And in these sort of rich homes, they were usually open to people to just sort of come in and engage in conversation. And the Lord Jesus, he reclines at table with Simon and others. And in the midst of that meal, suddenly a woman enters. And Luke tells us she's a sinner. He doesn't give us any more details than that. Simply, this woman is a sinner. We can fill in the gaps, and we could probably guess the nature of her sin and the nature of the life she had lived. But she proceeds to draw near to the Lord Jesus, and she has this alabaster vase or jar or something of precious ointment. And she prostrates, she kneels at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And she takes that ointment and she pours it over his feet. She lets her tears drop upon his feet. And she proceeds to wipe and clean the feet of the Lord Jesus. A Simon, who is lying right there on his couch beside the Lord Jesus, see what's going, sees what's going on. Uh, he finds the whole episode, the whole thing to be disgusting. If this were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. If he were truly from God, he would know the life she had lived and what she had been up to. And he, he would be as repulsed by her as I am. The Lord Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. And the Lord Jesus, always quick with a parable. Simon, there's a man, wealthy man, two sermons. And the one sermon, I'm going to update it. The Lord Jesus talks about denarii. Let's stick with dollars. The one man owes his master a million dollars. And the other servant owes his master, this man, a hundred dollars. And the master, this man, this wealthy man, decides to forgive the debt of both of these servants. One, a million dollars. One, one hundred dollars. 
And the Lord Jesus, his, his question to Simon is, cert, is simply this. Of these two men, which will be more thankful? Which will love his master more? And Simon is quick with his answer. He guesses, well, I suppose the one whose debt was greater. The one who has been forgiven more. And the Lord Jesus says precisely, I entered your home. You didn't provide it. You didn't wash my feet. I entered your home. You didn't greet me or welcome me with a kiss. But from the moment I've reclined at the table, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. This woman has not stopped weeping over my feet. This woman has poured out that which is precious in her sight on my feet and is washing it with her hair. Oh, Simon, understand this and get it and get it good. He who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. And then he turns to the Lord Jesus and he utters this beautiful statement. Your faith has saved you. Not her love. Be very, very careful here. Not her love. Your faith has saved you. Loving Christ is the fruit of trusting in Christ. You see, by faith, we understand who the Lord Jesus is. And by faith, we recognize Him as a Savior of sinners. And by faith, we simply receive that gift of forgiveness that is offered to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the light dawns upon our darkened minds, and the light dawns upon our darkened hearts, we begin to see and understand how much He has forgiven us. And out of that appreciation of Christ's forgiveness of us and what it cost Him to purchase our salvation and that forgiveness flows then this love, this love which wells up within us. And we realize that the one who is forgiven much, that's us. We take stock of our lives. We see our sins. We can name our sins. And we can name them all and say, the Lord Jesus has forgiven that. The Lord Jesus has covered that. The Lord Jesus has canceled that sin. And from that realization, he who is forgiven much, loves much. Oh, loving the Lord Jesus is the fruit of trusting in the Lord Jesus. And with that foundation firmly beneath our feet, we hone in on the text and we build with the second point. This is it. Loving Christ means all other loves take second place. Look with me again at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now please pay very close attention here. These verses are easily misunderstood. 
I recall some years ago on a Wednesday night standing in front of a young people from maybe ages 9 through 16, and we were talking about this precise text, and one of the young boys put his hand up and he said, you know, I struggle with this. I struggle with this idea of loving the Lord Jesus more than my mom and dad. I don't feel it. I feel like I love my mom and dad more like the Lord Jesus. When my mom still tucks me into bed at night, I was kind of surprised that he acknowledged that in front of all of his peers, but he did. When my mom still tucks me into bed tonight or when my dad throws the ball with me or I'm just hanging out with my mom and dad and they're there, this idea of of loving the Lord Jesus more than them, of hating my mother, of hating my father, Father, I just don't get this. I don't get my mind around it. And plenty have stumbled over this text, and it can easily lead to a misunderstanding. And not only are these verses easily misunderstood, these verses are easily and quickly misapplied, especially verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And many have misapplied that verse to justify their belligerence. Many professing believers appeal to that text to justify their kind of ornery attitude or dismissive attitudes towards other Christians. Well, I'm just bringing a sword. It's not, we're not the ones who bring the sword, brothers and sisters. It's the Lord Jesus who brings the sword. It's the gospel that brings division, not you or my prickly personality. And we dare not confuse belligerence with godliness. We dare not confuse having a quarrelsome spirit with the Spirit of Christ and thinking that we can just talk to one another or get on social media and attack one another and think we're doing Christ's work, gospel kingdom work, and go to this text and completely rip it out of context and misapply it. We're seeing a lot of people and professing Christians doing that precisely in our day. These verses can be easily misunderstood and these verses can be easily misapplied. Let me run through six statements in search of absolute clarity as to what the Lord Jesus is saying and isn't saying in this text. Number one, I want us to be clear. We are to love our family. Boys and girls at home, you are to love your mom and dad, and you are to think the world of your mom and dad. Spouses are to love spouses, husbands are to love wives, wives are to love their their husbands, and uh, parents, their children, children, their parents, cousins, everything else. We could go to innumerable places in the Word of God that affirm this. We are called to love our family members. I trust we're all clear on that. We're to love our family. Second thing we need to be clear on is this. Christ is using a literary device called hyperbole to make a point. He's trying to emphasize something. And the Lord Jesus uses literary devices repeatedly in his sermons. Here is a case in point, hyperbole. Just like that mom at home says to her seven-year-old son, I have told you a thousand times to clean your room. She hasn't told him a thousand times to clean her room. What is she doing? She is using a literary or, or, or a device to what? Get his attention to do what? To make a point, to emphasize something. That is what the Lord Jesus is doing here, using a device known as hyperbole. Here's the third thing we need to get. Our love for Christ must be so great that all other loves take second place. That's what he's saying. That when we consider who the Lord Jesus is, 
and we consider the gospel, and when we consider what it means to know sins forgiven, and like that woman in Luke 7, we understand that he who is forgiven much loves much. When we understand what it means to be saved, and we understand the difference between heaven and hell, all other loves will take second place to our love for the Lord Jesus and our devotion to him. Here's the fourth thing we need to understand. We might not necessarily feel like we love the Lord Jesus more than our family members. We might not be feeling it. Well, why is that? Because our family members are right here present with us. Mom and dad are right there in the room with you. Our spouse, they're right there at our right hand or our left hand or whatever the case may be. They're with us. They're tangible, physically present, the here and now. And so when we think of loving the Lord Jesus more than spouse or child or anybody else, and we sit there anguished of soul unnecessarily and think to ourselves, well, I'm not. I'm not feeling it. It's not about feeling it. The question is this. When that time comes, if it comes, God forbid it comes, when we must make a choice between loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and even loyalty to a family member, we know that all other loves must take second place. They do take second place because what could possibly compare to our love for the Lord Jesus who first loved us and gave himself for us? And the fifth thing we need to get is this. That at times, this love for the Lord Jesus, this devotion to Christ, it results in division. That's verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It does sadly lead to division. Not us. Not our ignorant attitude. Not our careless speech. Not the loss of our temper. Not simply being belligerent. No, no, no. It is the gospel. It is loyalty to Christ at times will bring division, division, even within families. And here is the sixth point we must understand. There is a difference between gospel division and carnal division. We need to hear that in our day. If you spend any time on social media, you need to hear that. If you, need, if you spend any time expressing and articulating your views on social media, you need to hear that. There is a huge difference between gospel division and carnal division. And we dare not confuse belligerence with godliness. We dare not confuse just a negative attitude, a winner-take-all attitude, every hill worth dying on attitude and a dismissive attitude towards others, cloaked with a zeal of piety while I'm just bringing a sword. Friends, that is not gospel division. That is carnal division. And it is downright ugly. And we are seeing far too much of it in our day. No, that it is the love of Christ that compels us. And it is the love of Christ that compels us in our relationships and in our attitudes with others. And at times, the truth, gospel truth, and at times, love for Christ, 
Yes, this will lead to division. This might even lead to separation. But we are not the cause. The way I treat you isn't the cause. It is truth itself. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's the second point. I pray, I trust those verses make sense to each and every one of us. Loving Christ means all other loves take second place. And here's the third truth, the third point. Loving Christ means we take up our cross. Look at verse 38, what the Lord Jesus says there. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, what did the disciples think when they heard those words? So there they are sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus. He is preaching this sermon, and suddenly he gets to this juncture. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We might immediately think, okay, they're thinking now of Calvary's cross and what the Lord Jesus is going to suffer there. Not exactly, because the Lord Jesus hasn't spoken of his cross prior to this point. The Lord Jesus hasn't indicated how he's going to die. So when the disciples hear this mention of the cross, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of simply what they've witnessed and seen growing up there in the environs of Jerusalem, in Israel. They have seen at times some of their fellow countrymen crucified. This is how the Romans have treated them. And they have seen the dead and dying at times lining the highways. Those who either perhaps were criminals or insurrectionists or some who perhaps even suffered unjustly. They've seen it. They've seen it since they were boys. They have seen this instrument of execution implemented in and around them. And they get it. They understand it. This is death. This is a brutal death. This is a loss of all. And now the Lord Jesus is looking us in the eye as he has sent us out as he is commissioning us to preach the gospel, whoever does not take his cross. So we know what that means. We're to carry our cross as we are dead men walking. That is what we are. We are dead men walking. And follow me is not worthy of me. It is to die to self is what the Lord Jesus is saying here. It means we must esteem, we do esteem the Lord Jesus so highly that if necessary, we are willing to die for him. I think of Thomas Kramer. Oh, we're going way back now. It's the 1500s, the Reformation in England. Thomas Kramer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, during the reign of Edward, we have the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in England. Edward dies. His half-sister Mary ascends the throne. She's a Roman Catholic, and she reinstitutes Roman Catholicism in England and Scotland and everywhere else, and Protestants flee for their life. About 300 are burned at the stake, and Thomas Kramer, he is threatened with death. He's threatened with the stake, and he recants. I'm no longer a Protestant. He recants. A short time later, oh, he is troubled in conscience. He is just overwhelmed with guilt, and he recants his recantation, and he's burned at the stake. And as Kramer is tied to the stake, and as the wood is lit, apparently, apparently, he put his right hand into the flame and said, perish, you unworthy hand, the hand that had signed the recantation to begin with. Oh, it's the stuff of legend, isn't it? And I'm not pretending for one moment to be a Thomas Kramer. 
But as we go back and we look at the history of the church, there have been men and women, young at old, at different junctures, who have known, who have known what it means to take up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus, to esteem Him so highly and to love Him so supremely that they are willing to die for Him. Yeah, I think the text means that. I think the text also means that we esteem Christ so highly that we're, we're simply willing to lose everything for Him. There is nothing we hold in this life so dear that we are unwilling to give it up, surrender it, sacrifice it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. A name perhaps not familiar to you, William Borden. He was a, this, this is going back into the 1800s. He was a graduate of Yale, wealthy man, a very privileged man, the world at his fingertips, so to speak. He decided the Lord was calling him to be a missionary. I think it was in China. And he's in his early 20s, graduate of Yale, the world open before him, and against the counsel of family and friends who thought he had literally lost his mind as he turned his back on it all and decided the Lord is calling me to preach the gospel in China, off he went. He never made it to China. Halfway there, he contracted some sort of terrible illness, gripped his body, and as he is breathing his last, William Borden uttered these words. Oh, write them down and remember them. No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is of supreme worth. The Lord Jesus is of inestimable value. The love of the Lord Jesus, oh, he who is forgiven much, loves much. As we see what Christ has done for us, not only in forgiving us our sins, but lavishing upon us this tremendous privilege as adoption as sons. Oh, we are overwhelmed by love for Him and esteem Him so highly that we are willing to lose everything for Him. I think it means that. Yeah, I think it means we esteem Him so highly we're willing to die for Him. I'm certain it means we esteem Him so highly we're willing to, to lose, surrender, sacrifice everything for Him. And I think it means we esteem Him so highly that we are simply put willing to deny self. We're willing to deny our dreams, our goals, our wants, our aspirations. It means we're willing to deny our sinful de desires, our sinful inclinations. It means that love for the Lord Jesus means we're able to look at ourselves and simply say, no. No, no, no. It is to deny for the sake of Christ. It is to say no to our greed. It's to say no to our lust. It's to say no to those temper tantrums. It's to say no to same-sex attraction. It's to say no to, to, to pride. It is to say no of every conceivable, imaginal sin. We simply say no. Why? Because we've taken up our cross. 
And we realize we are now dead men walking. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we desire. It's not about what will make us happy. It's not about what we, our dreams and our goals and our aspirations. We are now driven, overwhelmed, and governed by this one great principle. It's love for the Lord Jesus. Love for the one who first loved us. And here's the fourth point we can make from the text. It builds on the third. Yes, loving Christ means we take up our cross and closely related to it. Loving Christ means we follow Him. Verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The Lord Jesus lived a life of self-denial. The Lord Jesus did not come to please man. He certainly did not come to please self. What could the Lord Jesus declare from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry? Your will, O Father, your will, your will be done. Oh, to follow the Lord Jesus is to surrender our will. It is to exchange our will for God's will. Oh, and the rubber meets the road, doesn't it, in our daily experience when our children push the boundaries. How do we respond? Are we following the Lord Jesus? When we disagree with our spouse, what is our reaction? Are we following the Lord Jesus? Your will be done. When people don't treat us as we think we deserve, what is our response, our reaction? When our church won't affirm our personal opinions and preferences, what do we do? What's our response? Or when the provincial government imposes what seems at times irrational additional restrictions, how do I respond? Am I following the Lord Jesus? He who did not come to please himself, but he who made it his life's ambition to do the will of his heavenly Father. Oh, loving Christ means we follow Christ. Here's the fifth point. Brings us to verse 39. Loving Christ is how we save our life. Look at what he says. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And so whoever lives his life according to that governing self-principle of self-love, self-will, self-satisfaction, self-gratification, he loses his life in the end. In marked contrast, whoever loses his life, that is whoever takes up his cross and follows me, whoever surrenders his will, whoever denies himself, whoever is compelled by love for me, what in the end, losing his life in the present, living a life of self-denial, self-sacrifice for my sake, will find it. Two eternal destinies before us. The Lord Jesus indicates this as unparalleled fashion in John 5. He tells us a day is coming, the day of his return, when those who are in the tombs, all who are in the tombs, will hear his voice. 
and those who do evil, those who have lived to please self, well, what will they experience? A resurrection to judgment. And those who do good, those who are governed by a principle of love for God, love for the Lord Jesus, they will experience a resurrection to life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sacrifice, personal sacrifice, personal surrender, personal self-denial, not gratification, is the key to happiness. Oh, hear this, friends. I'm still learning it at 53 years of age, and I will be learning it until the Lord calls me home. We only begin to live when we die. That's what it means to be a Christian. We only really start living when we die. We die to our dreams, our goals, our aspirations, our desires, our wants, our inclinations. And we are governed by but one concern, Christ's will for us. There's a man who taught me this. Man and wife, actually, the names will be meaningless to you. They will soon be gone from the pages of history. They're already with the Lord. Alf and Clella Poland, uh, Irish. Well, he was Irish. She was actually Canadian from Lindsay, Ontario. And uh, we met them. We knew them have, living in Portugal. And uh, they were missionaries in Portugal and served there for close to 50 years. Just doing the Lord's work, living in the shadows, seeking to minister in a, just this small evangelical church in downtown Lisbon, and just giving their life, their time, their energy to serve quietly, to serve meaningfully, to serve faithfully, to serve unwaveringly. Why? Because at some point in their life, they had learned this key lesson. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not about being a missionary. Don't misunderstand me. It's about in the home, you moms at home, those in the workplace, with our neighbors as it relates to our children, whatever vocation, whatever calling, whatever station, whatever place God has put us in life. It's all sacred. It's all for Him. And it is to understand that in every facet of life, we approach it, we approach it compelled by love for the Lord Jesus. And being compelled by love for Him, a willingness to take up our cross, a willingness to follow Him, and in so doing, saving ourselves, finding what true life, true living is all about. Here's the sixth point, and it brings us now big picture to the context the, as a whole, the sermon. Loving Christ vanquishes the fear of man. That is Christ's main point as we look at Matthew chapter 10. Again, he sends out the disciples, the first commission, first 15 verses. He sends them out again, the second commission, verses 16 through 25. And he knows they're going to face difficulty. He knows there are going to be struggles. He knows there is going to be persecution. So fear God above all else. Yes. 
And oh, my disciples, love God above all else. And by loving God above all else, we find the sure and certain remedy for squelching the fear of man. There's a famous novel, Les Mis, Victor Hugo, right, wrote that. It's been made into a musical. And uh, that's a tremendous book, a tremendous work. And, um, you know, the two main characters in that book, Valjean, right, and the constable, uh, his name escapes me at the moment, Javert, something like that. So you have Valjean, who was a criminal, and Javert, the constable. And you may be not familiar with the story, but here it is. It's very moving. Uh, Valjean, criminal, is a young man. He steals a loaf of bread because he's hungry. And he is sentenced to 20 years in prison. And while in prison, he meets Javert, this constable, this police officer. They become acquainted, and there is a mutual dislike and enmity between the two. The time for Valjean's release arrives. He's given his papers, his parole papers, as to where he must go, what he must do. Off he ventures. He spends the night in the home of a priest. And this priest who welcomes him in and feeds him, and in the middle of the night, Valjean steals from this priest. Some silver candlesticks takes them, and in the dead of night, off he flees. The police catch him. They bring him back to the priest's home. And uh, they present the evidence, they present Valjean, they expect the priest to, to, to prosecute and to uh, apply charges, and to everyone's astonishment, the priest informs the policeman that he had actually given these candlesticks to Valjean, and that Valjean had actually forgotten some of the other gifts in his home which he had intended to give him, and he lavishes them upon Valjean. And at that moment, Valjean is confronted with radical grace. It changes him. It radically transforms him that he would experience such forgiveness, that he would experience such kindness, that he would experience such, such, such radical mercy from this man. And it captures him, captivates him, and his life is radically transformed. He has, however, broken his parole. Javert he, hears of it. And he chases Valjean, and for years, decades, he is hot on the heels of this man, determined to capture him, determined to re-imprison him. And at one pivotal moment in the novel, the two are together. Javert is facing sure and certain death, and Valjean saves him, rescues him. And at that moment, Javert is confronted with radical grace. Forgiveness, kindness, mercy, but rather than surrendering to it, he is hardened by it. Why? Because it does not fit into his worldview, his understanding of justice and reward, and he refuses to accept it. The man actually ends up committing suicide, and in the novel, then, what you have are these two men and these two radically opposed, absolutely antithetical, poles apart responses to grace. And the one man is won by it overwhelmed by it, and it, as a consequence, becomes the governing principle in his life. And the other man, refusing to acknowledge he has any need of it, 
finds it repugnant, can't live with himself, and ultimately ends up committing suicide. Oh, it's Luke 7, simply in another form. It's Simon the Pharisee there, right there beside the Lord Jesus. And it's this sinner, probably a prostitute, at the feet of the Lord Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee finding the entire scene to be unbelievably repugnant. Why? Because he who is forgiven little, he who does not acknowledge his sin, he who is not aware of their standing before a holy God, well, that person loves much, loves little. Oh, but the sinner, the sinner who sees his sin, her sin, in the light of the gospel, in the light of eternity, and understands what the Lord Jesus has done at Calvary's cross, understands what he went through upon the cross, understands that he became a curse for us, and sees that there is forgiveness unimaginable right there in the Lord Jesus, receiving him, simply receiving that gift, Christ himself, and the accompanying forgiveness. Oh, that person who is forgiven much loves much. And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying in this text, that as we understand the gospel and we understand what the Lord Jesus has done for us, oh, we love him because he first loved us. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you might strengthen us through your gospel this day. We do confess that we are faint-hearted. We confess that our knees are weak, our backs are heavy-laden. And we confess at times that we are confused, distraught, and perhaps even in despair. And we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes and fix them heavenward. Help us to fix our eyes upon heaven, things above, and not on things in earth. And we pray that you would strengthen us by your gospel according to the preaching of the Lord Jesus this day. And we pray this for our good, for your glory. In Christ's most worthy and matchless name, amen.
see you next time church god bless you
Your faithful. 